And it was one of those moments where you thought, what are we going to do next? So we had to pivot because we were already in. So what do we need to do to make money? And it's funny because it's one of those, it was one of those weird blessings in disguise. And of course, 2020 hit and we had COVID and the hotel market was absolutely decimated, right? No one was traveling. And it was so in that moment, you're like, oh, it totally didn't work out. Aaron Trone came to the world of local government with a desire to make a difference in the world. She brought smarts, tenacity, courage, and a willingness to go the distance. She tells the story of what can happen when we commit to the long game. She is proof that it is possible to make a mark if we only stretch our wings right where we are. That is, if we are surrounded by the right people who trust us, have a vision, and take the time to put all the pieces into place. Aptly put by a journalist covering this story, Aaron was the quarterback for a team with championship qualities. If you listen, you will learn just how a winning team comes together. Let's get started. Good morning, Erin. Good morning, Nancy. So great to have you here. We have been talking about doing this podcast for a little while now, and uh, you have some really wonderful uh, projects to share, and I am going to do my best to ask some questions that will help others to understand how to bring about these kinds of development projects in their own municipalities. So I want to just begin by giving a little bit of background. What I know of you and I have one similarity. We seem to have both come out of the gate by going into a consulting firm, which can be uh, a real challenge, but a great learning opportunity, I know. And so what made you move on from the consulting firm and take a role inside a municipality? I had actually always been interested in working in the public sector. The idea of giving back and serving others was always appealing to me. And I thought this was a good avenue for me to do it. But I, having said that, I look back and having gone into the consulting world first was such an amazing way to learn because they train you, they shape you, you drink from the fire hose, you learn it. And then you have uh, great skill sets to go out and, and use in the public sector. And the public sector, because there's limited number of people, sometimes the training, the ability to get trained in that way is not necessarily there. And the work is limited to what is happening in that township as opposed to what's happening everywhere. And you just go where you're needed. That was really great. <laughs> That must have been a real shift for you. And today you are uh, the assistant manager in Lower Allen Township, which is Cumberland County, and also the director of the Community and Economic Development Department. And I know you've had a lot of hats in the past before you actually narrowed it down to these two roles. And I guess if we could, we're going we're gonna to start by talking a, a little bit about this project, which is a real sort of beacon for this area. Everybody knows about this project. I'm going to call it the Lower Allen Commons Project. And I understand that this actually began with your development authority. There was something, or maybe actually we should start with the conversation you and Tom, your manager had. I think that's how he tells the story. <laughs> I think you were having breakfast or lunch somewhere. Tell the story of how this idea came about to develop what was at the time headed for a blighted 
property in your municipality? So it, it actually started, I think, with our comprehensive plan. So we were working on the comprehensive plan in 2017, and we adopted it in 2018. And when we were working on it in 2017, we were looking at areas that might need some redevelopment or that might need zoning changes in the future or what might make sense. And we were looking at the area around the mall because there's always such a conversation about malls. Are they going to make it? What's going to happen if they can't? How can we help them? And this site was a, a department store and it was across Route 15 from the mall. So it was our center, our, our commercial core is what we were calling it. And the mall is actually still doing quite well. And so we were less concerned about that, but we did have a very pointed conversation about the Bonton itself. <laughs> I think the term we used was it's circling the drain. So we saw it coming and we said, this is, I think the action item was have the development authorities start conversations with them to find out what their long-term plans are. So the comp plan gets adopted in February of 2018. And I think the next week, Bonton, all Bontons announced that they were in bankruptcy. And I was like, that was incredibly fast. <laughs> and Tom, my manager and I, we meet like every other week for breakfast to sit and talk about, you know, strategize about what's coming up so that we're not just talking about the day to day and quick popping in and we can focus. and. So this item came up, you know, the Bontons in, in bankruptcy, it was one of the things that was discussed in the comprehensive plan. Is it something that we really want to do? Because I think <laughs> I said, I think I want to buy the Bonton. And I was waiting for him to just say, are you out of your mind? And he did it. He said, we have the development authority. It was put together specifically for this purpose, you know, talk to them about it and see what they want to do. So I was like, okay, great. That went better than I thought. And then the next step was the development authority. And I remember writing them an email. And again, we, it was in preparation for a meeting. And I thought that it would be a mixed bag of people saying, this is really going to be our first development project. This seems like we're jumping into the deep end. This is a bigger project. And everyone was like, no, this totally makes sense. This is what we're doing. And then the last one was going to the board of commissioners to get their support. And uh, I always give Tom a hard time because he'll be like, he's okay, this was your idea. So I think you should present it. <laughs> commissioners, Erin has something she wants to ask you. And I'm like, okay, thanks. And get this goes really bad. Then it's just going to be me out there. But it, it was great. And, and they were supportive of it too. And I think that made all the difference in the world for this project is that it had a really broad support early on from everybody. And we had, you know, discussions about what we were going to consider success for this project. Because success in the private sector is very much based on profit. And this site had challenges in the sense that when we first looked at it, we, we were going to try to keep the building and convert it into something else, convert it into a conference center or something of that nature. And as we started to look at the construction and the structure, it just wasn't going to be compatible because it was an older building. So it had columns everywhere and you columns are not conducive for a conference center where the people want to be able to see the screen or whatever's happening in front of them, not a giant column. And in order to take it down, you pretty much had to take down the whole building. And when we looked at looking, going forth for kind of a, another retail use, retail departments were just not taking 
that kind of footprint anymore. The Bonton was 140,000 square feet Mm -hmm. and and two stories. And it's just not the way that retail's done anymore. So the uses that were coming in that we were hearing about from on the market were storage units. Someone wanted to convert it to a U-Haul storage. The best one I think that came out of there was possibly a gym, a I think a gas station. So there's nothing wrong with these uses that were coming in from the private market. And they certainly would have been an easier flip and it probably would have made them money. But in the commercial core where it was and one of the most visible sites in Lower Allen, the discussion was, is that what we want to show the world? And the conversation very much was, there's 70,000 cars that pass on Route 15 every day, and they're going to see <laughs> they're going to see a U-Haul rental. U-Haul is not an incidental use. You do not drive down the highway and say, U-Haul, I need to go get one. You call and you go and you find it, and it doesn't really matter where it is. It doesn't need visibility. So we want to put something out there that's going to draw people off the interstate that says, come to Lower Allen, see what's here. And, and none of the things that were happening on the private side were going to do that. And that's another reason why they said we're going to jump in. And we all also agreed going in that it was going to be, you know, we weren't going to try to develop everything in the township. It was very specifically about this spot because of the potential that this, ha- this spot had to make on the rest of the township. And so that's really why we jumped in. And when we jumped in, then we had to figure out how did we jump in. And so our next step was we contacted a commercial broker. There's some challenges with that because when you're going to a contract with as a public entity, how do you make that work? Our solicitor and our finding was that this is a professional service because they're licensed. They have to take testing. They have to be up on things. So it's a professional service. So we were able to contract directly. And I think that a lot of development authorities try to do it alone. And I think that's harder for them. I would definitely recommend going with the broker because they're able to bring uh, not just their knowledge, but their contacts. They've already have established avenues and they're already trusted with some of the companies that you're looking to bring in as opposed to you trying to get in there and find it. And time was a BS too because... The longer you own this property, the longer you have to, we had to pay taxes on it too. We had to pay stormwater fees on it. So there's real cost to owning the property. Very much we felt that developer rule of time is money. So that was really helpful for us too about, and also trying to figure out what does it cost to buy a vacant bankruptcy department store? (laughs) I'm not really, this is the first time in the market for one of those. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there's just so many things that you did, which you've got to say, we've never done this before. And people have got to say, we've never done this before. Isn't this a big risk? And I, one of the questions, and, and you can speak to this now or as you, as you tell your story is, I am thinking like when you're in this position, you've got to feel vulnerable as a local government. Like who would want to come here? What is it that we have to offer? What are we bringing to the table? Have you thought about that through this process? You definitely delivered. So whatever it is, it, you have it. But I, I wonder, what is it that would make, and I'll let you talk about who came in, what is it that would make somebody say, wow, yeah, I think we'd like to work 
with this government as opposed to another one? Because there's mm-hmm. lots of vacant bontons around. Yes. So our first thought was that we were going to try to do this conference center. And we went in for grant funding to try to make that happen, a hotel conference center. Because our first thought was the location here is right off of 581 and Route 15. And it's a great crossroads. And it's right outside of Harrisburg. And there's not a ton of hotels out here. So this makes sense to us. And we applied for funding from the state and we didn't get it. And it was one of those moments where you thought, what are we going to do next? So we had to pivot because we were already in. So what do we need to do to make money? And we needed to then divide it into smaller units in order to sell off each unit to make the money that we needed to get back for the project. And it's funny because it's one of those, it was one of those weird blessings in disguise because right after, shortly after we had bought the property, and we didn't get the funding and we knew we weren't going to be going with the conference center because the goal for the conference center would have just been a hotel and conference center on this 14 acres, as opposed to different retailers and, and things of that nature. And of course, 2020 hit and we had COVID and the hotel market was absolutely decimated, right? No one was traveling. And it was so in that moment, you're like, oh, it totally didn't work out because we had been pursuing conversations with a grocery store. And what was one of the few stores that was still allowed to be open and persist during COVID was grocery stores. And so it was one of the few ones that you were like, that actually was so serendipitous. And we had, I think too, the reason the development authority got into the project was because they wanted to make sure they were bringing something that this market wanted to see. And they wanted something that they considered quality and they weren't in it solely to make money. So the conversation early on had been geared that way. And we started to do the site planning that way. And so early on, the name Trader Joe's had come up. Now, I think there is a little bit of match that has to happen. They also have to be looking to come into the market. And so they were looking at this market and they were actively looking at other sites. I think one of the differences is that because the development authority was not solely focused on the short-term profit, but more on a long-term redevelopment project. And what will this do to the tax base? What will this do to the surrounding properties? What will, how will it help the indirect spending? How would that help us? And that was really how we had defined the success of the project. We were willing to give up a little bit more than some of the other competitors. So it was negotiations about how long they can have free rent, negotiations about what kind of warranties we were going to give them negotiations about what they what restrictions because they don't want to be in a competition with a lot of other locations so they say if we do this you can't have x things in this property and it was not always appealing there were times that we were like i don't even know that we could do this if we do this if we agree to these conditions are we going to be able to develop the rest of the property what's it going to look like and so for a developer that's looking to buy this, sell this again, and somebody else, you, they're looking for a shorter term profit and to maximize the profit. They're not necessarily saying, well, gee, what does this community want to come to? And so I think that made a big difference in us sticking it out because we had other offers. There were other offers to come in to this location and they would have been easier, but it was the development authority held true and said that, but that's not where we got into this. We got into this to bring something great. And we kept plugging at it. And it was about nine months of negotiation 
And it was, it ended up being a 125 page lease. We had three hour long calls for weeks on end with a team of lawyers. It was uh, interesting. <laughs> so this is after, you're talking about Trader Joe's. So how did you first get the news that they were interested? Through our broker. And that's why we would recommend, I would always recommend going with a broker. So just the fact you had a broker was probably for them or like a plus. They, it was certainly a plus for us because we couldn't, you can't just call up Trader Joe's. Go see now people say, we've been calling Trader Joe's and telling them to come here all along. I'm like, you, there you go. That's not how it works. They're, they're, they have a very specific real estate team that's looking. And when you have a broker, they are already talking to those kind of teams. They're legitimized in a way that Aaron Trone Aaron Trone, pie in the sky, it's, they already know how to talk to these people. Yep. And the commercial broker was also, you would consider a team player in terms of understanding your goals and being able to represent you, your interests and what you're trying to do. And I think the way I would look at it, yes, they had to, but also you always have to look at it that everyone is coming at it from a perspective for themselves. So there's, they still stand to gain a lot when property so high because there's a percentage of more is more. <laughs> yeah. So there's a little bit of balance that you have to do it. And I do think that the development authority helped balance out. We have really professional and really intelligent members. We have, we now actually have a real estate broker of our own that's on the board, which I think is great because they're, they're able to give you that perspective. But at the time we, we didn't, but we have a commercial banker or lender. And then we have uh, a site engineer. We have a, and we have a landscape developer and then we have a zoning administrator. So a lot of knowledge around how to sell and build properties. Could you say a little bit about your role through this process? I, I it's clear you had just an early energy and enthusiasm and your willingness to put it forward. So some courage. <laughs> what else do you feel like you, as the time went on, how did your role evolve? So I didn't really have a way to say this, but the newspaper actually coined this phrase. And I actually think it works. They called me the quarterback. And I think that works because it was a team effort and you were calling the plays and you had to know what everybody was doing. Because as we started to develop the property, you know, there was, I mean, one of the complications with being a government and going into building is that there's all kinds of laws about how you could do this and what you can pay to do this. You have to have separate entities. You have to bid it out separately. So there's a separation cost. So you, you can't just, as a, in a private sector, you would just get a general contractor and they would just do this work because there wasn't a ton of electric work. There wasn't a ton of other specialty work that was needed but as a local government, you, you can't do that. So we had to have an electric contractor. We had to have the GC. We had to have a site contractor. We had to have a mechanical contractor. So we had four different companies trying to work together. So they all mobilize. They all pull up on the site. They're all working there at the same time. 14 acres sounds like a lot, but when you, when everybody has their equipment, now everybody has to play nicely together in the sandbox. And it, they don't always, right? And we had to have coordination meetings. We had an architect, so you had to have that. We, of course, had our site engineer that had to be working on it. And then we brought in a contract or a construction manager 
because uh, that's not something that we had expertise in. We had to have somebody there to make sure that things were getting done properly. So there ended up being a whole team plus the lawyers plus the realtor. So you had negotiations, you had the selling, you had the actual construction, you had the design, you had the oversight, and then you also have the banking. Uh, and the banking we did mostly on our own, but there's also the cash flow component that was going on for all this. So somebody had to be involved in each of those to be able to say, here's where we're at and here's what's happening in the other parts, just so you know, because they all fit together, the schedule feeds together. And I think that's the role that I played was hey, here's where we're at. Here's the coordination. And I suppose that there was at some point there that you started to feel that others now wanted to be a part of the Lower Round Commons project. Can you talk about that? Because I do understand that this growth spurred some regeneration around the area. It, it did. There's a strip center or a shopping mall, kind of, if you want to call it that, across the, the street from where this is taking place. And it was a older strip center and it had, we'll call them like B level tenants. So there was a karate studio, a hair salon, things like that were in there. They had been there for a long time. There was a appliance shop, but the owner of the appliance store wanted to sell and be a go out of business. And so Instead of the owner of that shopping plaza saying, I'm going to keep these tenants, he took a risk too and said, I'm, I think I have an opportunity here to bring in higher quality tenants and make more money because of who's going across the street. So they did some facade improvements. They're starting, they've cleared out some of the spaces there to be able to bring in and negotiate other newer tenants. Um, so I think that was encouraging because a little bit that was the goal was to make sure that we're staying fresh, we're staying relevant. And again, not low reality would be involved in each and every single one of those. We just wanted to be the catalyst. And so it is really good to see that is happening. The hotel that we're working with, because there is a hotel at that at our property, it's just not a convention center. They are actually looking at a hotel. They anticipate the need for this area to be so great. They're actually looking at putting one like very nearby. I don't, wanna, I don't know what I have permission to say here. But they're looking at this area with a renewed interest now that they hadn't before. And that's exactly what you want to hear. And so we're hoping that works. The mall supported us on this, which was great because we had gone to them for support because we don't want to be in competition with our mall. We want our mall to be successful. They actually said to us, this is great. This is going to help us. This is, people are going to go there, but they're going to come here too. And the more, it's basically the more things that are happening in this area, the better it is for all of us. So we're trying to feed into that. That's wonderful. And I think the work that's been done there along the roadways or it, it is it, everything seems to me to be pretty good. Are there infrastructure aspects to this work that you see down the road? Mm. All right. We did, since it was an older building, it didn't, it wasn't on public sewer. So we did take the opportunity to bring public sewer to this site, which again, I think helped us bring in stronger tenants because um, the tenants that we were looking at of this caliber didn't want to have um, a pump that they had to deal with or worry about what was going to happen to it. So I think that was helpful. So that was an investment that we certainly did. And then, of course, we had to demolish the building. And you're not starting at zero when you're doing redevelopment. <laughs> you're starting below zero because you have to buy it and then you have to take it down. And that's probably the scariest moment when you 
take it down and then you're afraid like nothing's going to happen. And you're like, I have now devalued a property. I've done the opposite of economic development. So that was maybe the scariest moment. And of course, we finished demolition in <laughs> May of 2020. So it was a scary time because there were times when contractors weren't able to come because they were concerned about COVID or their, you know, loved ones were vulnerable. It was very early on in the pandemic where we just didn't know much. And so it was, it slowed everything down. So Erin has brought up a few pictures on her screen. Erin, can you tell us what I'm looking at right now? Like this one share, I shared with the uh, local government award. Mm-hmm. So there's the bankruptcy side <laughs> going up there and call. And that was actually one of the things that happened too is I remember calling A&G Realty Partners to say, okay, so how do we get involved here? And I think I called them before I called Cable Commercial Real Estate just to get all the information. And they sent you, you know, a ton of, you download a whole big packet of due diligence so you can start to look through it. So that was a fun call too. And and it's not something you've done before. You're just figuring it out, like making sense of what you were looking at and what you were going to have to do next. We really were, we had a good team, but just because the size of it and what we were we, the, the development authority had been in operation since 2008 and I started in the township in 2010, but there's no funding source for the development authority. So they had gone through, they had done a strategic plan to figure out where they needed to, where they needed to look at redevelopment, but they didn't have any money to put the plan in, into action. And the township had, instead of funding it, they deeded the old township building to them and said, you sell this and you'll have some seed money. So that was actually one of the first things we did. So we spent a lot of years trying to get that site sold. So we would have money to even participate in projects like this. So that was a whole, that was how we spent our first kind of infancy. And then we finally sold that building and it was, okay, we have a little bit of money now to do something. And it just, it seemed to work together. And then the township was great too, because they backed us on our loan. That was one of the other things that was like really interesting was how you get funding for this. And we brought in Concord Public Financing and basically told them, here's what we'd like out of our loan. And they were skilled enough to say, we know what you want. And they put the conditions and charts together and went out and it got quotes for us. And it wasn't until we started to be into the project and I started to see the flexibility that they had built in for us, how much I really appreciated them and what they were doing. Yeah. Because, the, because the township backed our loan and our loan was not based off of the mortgage of the property, it, there was a lot of... Uh, I'm going to say shortcuts, but it was a lot easier because when you're going into business with the tenants, they all want to see how mortgaged you are and those kind of things. And we didn't have to give that to them. The other thing they did is they basically then told the bank, like, this is the project you're backed by, you're backed by the township, full faith and credit, not by the project. So sometimes the bank would want to know where are we on the project? And I was, of course, very congenial with them and was happy to tell them about it. However, 
it wasn't a requirement, which it often is of like reports. Here's where we are. Here's where the, the cash flow is. Of course, they could see the cash flow because they had a, a project account. But those kind of things really gave us a lot of flexibility. I don't think that necessarily is something that a lot of public officials thinking about or used to. I, I want to just step back for a second and make an observation from a HR people standpoint. I think that the history, and I've known your manager, Tom, for now for a lot of years, there is something in this story about the stability that there has over a long period of time that you came into the scene and you also have been there for a while. You haven't been in and out. You stayed with it. And there is this, you can really see the arc here of what happens when you had the opportunity. There were things in place. You had, were already working well as a team. You believed in each other. Like there was a lot of strengths here. And trust. Unity and trust. That was huge. I, I don't even think I realized how much trust there was until making the request. And I just remember thinking that uh, I thought maybe they might think that they might question my sanity and be like, what do we do with, I don't know that Aaron's stable. And that they were immediately all in. I was like, oh, like, we're now, what do I, now what do I do? <laughs> They're all in. Yeah, but also that moment of we're all on the same team. There is a lot of trust here because we have built a foundation. There's been, there's a past that leads up to that. So I think that absolutely helped that Tom was the one who said we need to be I think that the cop plan before the 2018 was in 2007 and the discussions at those times were Lower Island's almost built out. We need to start to focus on redevelopment. We need to bring in a development authority. And so he got that started. He, you know, helped bring on those team members. He worked on the strategic plan with them. And then once they were there, he said, all right, I've, I've brought them to where they need to be. We need to bring in uh, a professional and have them work with them. And that's when I was hired in 2010. So. Yeah, the pieces were in place and that was huge that there wasn't a scrambling of everything. This, I think, is a great example of shared vision that, that when it came to it, there was shared sense of purpose for and, and vision for the township. And now you had the pieces in place to take advantage of this opportunity. Well, you turned a challenge into an opportunity, which is just a remarkable story. I could talk about this all day, but there's some other projects that are really uh, exciting. And I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with those. Uh, you had mentioned in some of our preliminary uh, talks about the development of park and creekside trails as one of your favorites. And it must be just a wonderful part of your municipality as well. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So across well, in this building that we're in right now, that you can see behind me. Yeah, that's a great building. Yeah. <laughs> it is, was built, I think, in 2008. So a little bit before I got here, but it was still very new when I got here. And they had bought uh, a parcel that was across the creek. There's a little stream that runs through this property. And at the time, the property was called, quote, the bus garage, which I didn't know what that meant because I guess apparently... In some form of life, it used to be a bus garage, which always makes me laugh because that always happens in local government. They refer to the property as what it was 50 years ago. And if you're new, you're like, so it was this very dusty, gravelly lot. And it had this metal shed in the background, in the back of the property that I guess was the bus garage. And then we were using it uh, for our impound. And there were, I don't know what happened, but there were like bullet holes and stuff in it. It was a mess. It was very much a gray site. And the idea for it was to make it a park, that this would be a whole municipal campus and this would be a place that people would want to come to. 
And so they had gone through, they had done a, a master plan for the park, but they hadn't gotten funding for it yet. So when I came in, one of my first jobs was to get funding for the park over there. So we wrote, I wrote two different grants over there to be able to get the plan actually in action and the equipment over there, the, the dirt and the ground and everything moving. So I felt very connected to it. And it was really cool to see it go from a bus garage, a blighted site to actually becoming a playground and a green space and kids come and play on it. But I think my favorite part of that was that, wow, when it was a bus garage, I was, I think, single. And when it became a park, one of the first people to play in the park was my son. So when we were doing the Korea application, I was pregnant. So there seemed to be in my mind like a real like your metaphor that was happening yeah, there, right? Yeah. But you're getting the funding, you're building it, you were pregnant. <laughs> birth. And, more than- yeah. And then and then he was when they were when the equipment was actually over there where you could play, he was about one and climbing up the little rocks and my pictures of it. So that was a really cool project but it was also one of those things where you got into this job because you wanted to be able to make a difference in the community and it's so cool when you can see that you made a difference in the community and that one was palpable to me on a macro level and on a micro level and so that was one of my my favorite ones yeah yeah we were joking before we started that your son was like is this going to be an interesting podcast or are you going to talk about work? But I can imagine that in terms of your work to be able to show him and, and have him be able to engage with either events or something like this is makes it more real to him as to all this time, which you, I'm sure, have committed to this and there's mom working again. Yeah, yeah, they're funny. Uh, I don't know how much they understand or don't understand. So they'll come to the building and they know that there, there's a fire station upstairs and there's police there for us. So when they were really little, they would tell people, my mom's a fireman. And I was like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not totally. And then they started understanding mom built park. So they'll say, oh, we're going to go on mommy's trail, things like that, which is cute. And then actually there was a sheep that moved into the township and it, it, the zoning wasn't quite right for it. And it was one of those projects that the development authority got involved with again to say, we're going to help. We're going to help make the zoning work. We're going to help fight them and support them so that the zoning does work because this is going to change our gateway. It's going to be a little bit better. And so that was a big part of my life for a while was like everything was about the sheets. And so then the other day, my set, my son said to somebody, oh, yeah, well, mom invented sheets. And I was like, so that's not what mom did. <laughs> so that's always fun to see how they. Uh... Yeah, how they interpret those. I'm sure they they see you as a super mom in many ways that everything comes back to <laughs> But that's really wonderful. I wonder, as a mom and a professional, what do you think about this field for young women who are, or young professionals who are thinking about a career? So one of the reasons I wanted to leave the consulting world was because you do a lot of traveling, which is so fun and interesting, but it is difficult when you are a mom to coordinate the travel and the timing and make that work. And there's a little bit less of that. And the hours are a little bit more predictable at, at local government. That I I like, and I, I see that from other women. You know, one of the things that's happened because of COVID that's made it a little bit more interesting is because government used to be, I think, a really family-friendly place for workers. But now 
so many fields are allowing people to work from home, which is really very appealing to uh, a lot of moms and dads because it allows you to integrate the life-work balance, not just from 6 to 9 p.m. It's throughout the day. It's just I'm transferring the laundry from to the dryer. I'm defrosting the chicken. If I'm not, if I don't remember to defrost the chicken in the morning, I'm going to have a chicken for dinner that night. So there's a little bit of that. So I don't know that government has fully made the transition into being appealing in this work environment. I think they're still finding their way because when I talk to other people in this field, most of them are are in the office all the time too. So I think that's a little bit of, of I think that's going to be interesting going forward. But we, we're seeing with some of our applicants, that's some of the things that they say to us is, I only required to be in the office one day a week. How often am I expected to be here? And when you say every day, <laughs> yeah, it's not great. So I think it is important to government to figure out how to possibly make that work that workers can have some work from home capability or some time flexibility. Um, and at the same time, as managers, you're also stressed with them. You, you definitely have people that have to be boots on the ground. You have to have people here at counters so that you can answer questions when they come in. You have to have your cops. They have to come in. EMS has to come in, public works. And so then what is fair? How do you make that work? So there's some real unique challenges, I think, there. Yeah, yeah. But I think there is a key to, particularly now in the tight labor market, being able to consider uh, more of that integration. There are types of jobs and types of work where it's easier to integrate and actually may be beneficial for the perspective <laughs> that you bring to have just not yeah, yeah, I, I think there there is a room for a mix of how people fulfill those professional roles, in, in, whether they're partly remote or just doing more of, I, I think some of the best managers are out and about in the community doing things. It's not much different than that. When you are, it, it, the point is to not be in the office 24-7. Mm -hmm. So part of that. And I wanted to to also ask you if there was anyone in particular who influenced you or mentored you as you came into the field, particularly the economic development field. And, and your master's at Penn State, you did your undergrad at Virginia Tech, and then somehow you made it up to Pennsylvania. Yes. When I had started in economic development, I, I had always been interested in it, even in, in school. I remember taking some you know, classes and they talked about that as a different branch of planning. Mm -hmm. And that one was interesting to me. And they talked about grant writing and it's funny because one of the professors said that he had a student or a colleague, they called him like the boy with the golden pen. Like anytime he wrote a grant, he got money. And I, I, I remember being like, I want to be the girl with the golden pen. I want to do that kind of stuff. And so when I went to an engineering firm, that was what I did. I started doing economic development work for them. And a lot of it was grant writing and helping them get funding for their clients' projects, which then allowed them to get paid to do the work. So that was interesting. And then when I moved up to Delta, they had a, an extreme focus on that kind of uh, lobbying and economic development and funding and putting those pieces together. It was funny you mentioned John Miserak. John Miserak and Dan Santoro. I don't think I ever got to a, names, but they were some of my leaders at Delta. And John is now in the private sector. But he was great. We started the same day at Delta. And one of the best things was when you're new, 
it's a little scary to ask questions because you don't want to you don't want to bit to other people that you don't know so it's a little it's scary especially when you're young you're like am i supposed to know these things so john was more experienced and when he would start the same day and we like stuff would come up and then i'd be able to look at him and be like do you know what i'm talking about and be like i have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> Not just me. There's like a safe space. And be like, okay, we have questions then because you felt like, no, you guys have skipped over a bunch of the story that new people don't understand yet. So that was great and helpful. And then John had an insane amount of energy and it comes at you fast. And I, I just loved working with him. And you have to pivot fast because he also does that too, which I also love. And I think my, my, my dad and my brother are a little bit like that too. And you just kind of, roll with it so you're like we're gonna we'll cycle back around to this it's gonna work out you just have to ride the ride a little bit i love it and and then dan santoro is now the manager at cranberry but he had they had just opened delta had just opened a cranberry office when i started and a lot of the workhorses we'll call them the, the, (laughs) the ones that could do all the writing for a lower cost were tied to central Pennsylvania. They had family here, whatever, they were living here. So I had just moved here. And so I didn't really care where it went. So they just kept sending me out to Cranberry to do the work out there because they they were just the executives at that point. And so I got to know Cranberry really well. And I worked with Dan Santoro and Debbie Grass. And and they were so great. They were great team. My it, gosh, you guys we, must have had a lot of fun too. It was so fun. It was so great. It's one of those things that you look back on. And, and John, John will say this too. We're like, there was so much talent on that team. Like, when are you going to have that much camaraderie in a room again? It, it was one of those things where you would be up till 11 o'clock at night working and it didn't really feel like work. Although later on, I was, oh yeah, I, Pause. I would like to have a family, and unless I marry someone, a toll booth worker on the turnpike, <laughs> I don't have a chance to meet somebody. So that was also part of the. I might need to go to local government, plant some roots somewhere. But it is a lifelong network, that's for sure. And I'm seeing yeah. that come to roost now. So you appreciate more what you had there. The- yeah, and I think you learned too some of those bonds that have. They're built in the trenches, right? And there's a lot of anxiety of last minute RFPs or whatever. And nobody felt those pains except those people. And you're like, oh, obviously real life traumas. But you start to see yeah. <laughs> yeah. a little bit of how that works. Yeah, the consulting firm experience does help you to, you have to work very fast and you're going to get rejected and then you get, just move on. There, you have that sort of rhythm and everybody has been there. And yeah, it's a good experience. Yeah. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and I'll just put it out there now, is just this, uh, the conversations I've been having in the pioneering, pioneering change community, a lot of them are about the, the funding that's really coming our way as the governments over the next three to five years is what they're saying. And so your grant writing skills are going to be extremely valuable. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts or advice for other municipalities that want to take advantage of sort of funding opportunities in the future. What needs to be in place? Do you need to have a grant writer on site? Do you, are there other pieces that are, that maybe the finance piece? I was having a conversation this week about how important it is to have good finance controls in place before you mm-hmm. go for funding. Both of those, I think both those things, um, it, it's helpful to have somebody who's dedicated to, to grant writing because there's 
their systems and the way that they actually deliver the funding. You, know, you have registrations and you have to be up on all that. And when we had someone from DCD come into our office the other week, just to make the rounds to say, hey, I'm your coordinator. And she wanted to know how the ARPA funding went for us. And I said, that one was really easy. And she said, it wasn't for most people. And I said, we already had all of our registrations. We already had all of our sign-ins and logins. We just basically clicked a button that said, yes, please. We'd like money now. And, and it came. And it's usually not that easy at all. But yes, for a lot of municipalities, particularly the smaller ones, there's, I can't really imagine because there's a lot to get all that up and going, a lot of different numbers, a lot of things that you have to research. And then they all kind of take days to get the information back to you. And I had gone through those pains of learning all of that when I first came out of college. So again, when you go to those consulting firms, you're given the ability to learn all of that and figure it out. And then when you come here, you just yeah. have the knowledge. Yeah. And also just the, the vision to be part of that. You'd mentioned the strategic plan, your comprehensive plan, having something to back up that there, this isn't just out of the blue kind of idea that you've really thought through. It seems to be that's that partnership. You're coming to it with a sense of being, understanding the role of government into making things happen. If there's going to be like the build back better or the infrastructure funds that it's, there's something there. Sure. So I guess the way I like to think of it is in the private sector, right? You'd be going for a bank loan and they're, they want to see your business plan and they want to see your assets and they want to know before they give you money, you know, have you thought through this? And grants are the same way. They're less likely to give you funding if you just say, oh, hey, we think this be a good idea. So when you can point to studies, committees, things that you've done in the past that show that this is not just something you thought of, that this is something you're committed to. They particularly like to see that you have invested, you've spent money on this already, then they know you really want to make this work, then they're more likely to give you funding. So any of that pre-planning that you can do ahead of time to say, this is where we're going, this is how this piece fits into it, I think is always helpful. And I think some municipalities struggle with that because the it's usually funding is announced and then it's quick, let's think of a project. And then if you... <laughs> and then right. there's a lot of work that they want to see when you're applying. Have you done your due diligence? Have you done an environmental assessment? Have you done these things? And these things take time. You have to hire consultants for them. So in the funding periods are usually only announced, you know, you only have maybe a month. If you're not ready for that kind of uh, funding, then it's going to admit you're going to miss it. So you do have to have those conversations and, and go that way. That being said, we also like to be as flexible as possible because we can say, this is our hope. This is a priority for us. And we want to do this one yeah. soon. And they're like, oh, wait, but there's funding for this one. So this one's going to go in the back corner <laughs> real quick. Yeah. You know, so you have to be, you have to be able to adjust, but you do have to be prepared. Yeah, that's well said. <laughs> I can imagine how that works. Well, I want to ask you just your ideas about innovation in government, because there's always this uh, tension between making sure that we preserve what's important for government to do, the reliability, structure, order. And yet your story is just reeks of innovation, creative thinking, uh, willingness to take some risk. Does it, in your mind, shape your thoughts about what government can be if it 
How do you square innovation in, in government? I guess I'd like to think that it was never government. I don't like to think of government as a limiting factor for innovation. It's just a different place for it to happen. I think that government is not necessarily quick to jump into new technology um, because it's expensive and you can't really afford to be wrong <laughs> about that investment. So it, it is helpful to be out and about in the community and still find out you know, what are other firms using that work and make sure you understand that. And then how can it be applicable to what you're doing at your job? And then again, when you have the trust and you can make the case that this is going to be better for us, it, it helps. There has to be a need. There's no innovation if there isn't a need. There's plenty of need in government. So it's, I think, about matching the two up. But it is funny because I forget who it was, but somebody came to me when we were first doing this project and said, and I think it was a finance person, which is fine, <laughs> and said, why would you do this? Because a lot of times in government, I think sometimes the thought is, if you do something, you might get in trouble for it. But it is very hard to get in trouble. It's harder to get in trouble for not doing something. It's harder to prove. Um, it's not as like out there. And so why would you take the risk? And my response was, well, because I, if you don't do anything, then you don't, ha then you don't make a difference. And that wasn't what I, why I got into this career, into this field. That wasn't, um, my goal was to make change not be safe and so you do have to boldly go and say and i i would say at times to our team i'd say you know what guys one way or the other we're gonna make headlines it's either gonna be great or it's gonna be really bad but we're gonna make headlines and people will laugh when we won but you do have to have a little bit of that acceptance and it's moments like that where i look at some of those CEOs that say things like, I bombed terrifically, but I still learned a ton. And I'm like, let's hope it's not that one. But you see what they're saying. That they're saying you, you have to take the risk or else you won't do anything. Yeah. It is definitely a such a benefit to have the within you that desire to make a difference, to have a sense of, of community going into it. I think there's a lot of managers that can relate to this and how to get that team in place to make it happen is, is a whole other discussion. But I think your example is just full of a path for how to really build a, a local government with the right people in place. And uh, I, I want to, the, the question that relates to this has to do with how you envision a, a healthy municipal government. And you all have every obstacle that every, there's nothing about Lower Island that is like so special that, oh, that's why they could do this. There's, you are as challenged as any other municipality. And yet there is in this case, if I were to ask you, there was no obstacles of money or time. What is it that you envision as a healthy municipal government? We did have really good fiscal management. We have a healthy fund balance. We have a, I think it's a, a double A plus bond rating. So things like that really help you to be able to take on those kind of risks. They help you get better funding. So that's helpful. And there were a lot of policies that went into place way ahead of time for that to be built up where it was. 
way before I got here. So it does. It, it, it takes a lot of vision and foresight to, to get there. Money always helps. I think communication helps. I think that's maybe something we could do a little bit better. Sometimes we hear about from our residents that they, they're surprised by certain projects. So I think the transparency of, of government is always going to help build the trust with your residents. Sometimes they'll, they don't always want the outcome that's happening, but they appreciate the, the being told. They appreciate having a chance to have had their say. We just had a plan come forward at planning commission and there were some residents that came out, spoke out against it. And at the end, the plan transitioned a little bit. It wasn't the exact plan that the developer had proposed, but it wasn't 100% what the residents were, were hoping for either. But after they were done with their piece at the meeting, they walked out. And for whatever reason, I had to talk to one of them. So I followed out and I got to see them. They shook hands and they just basically said, I don't think they said plate, but they just said congratulations or, or I think she said congratulations because to the developer, because she felt like they got their plan. And he said, I think you made out pretty well here too. And, and they did. So you see that, that there's. That's what it's about. You're making yeah. that compromise. And able to able to provide the, the structure or the container in which those conversations can happen. And that there is, again, this has to do with the stability which you have there. So the, this, this last question is, what do we need to preserve in local government? And what do we need to progress? Something that we really need to develop going forward. And maybe there's something more you want to say about that. Communication, I think, is changing and evolving. Sometimes I think local government has a little bit of, of an issue of trying to be able to look outside of itself. They say, we're better than because they only have this on their website. And I'm like, okay, but I want you to understand that our residents' point of view is not looking at other townships' websites. <laughs> they're looking at websites that they actually go to, or they're using technology to work their lives. So if they can reserve a table you know, at open table for their restaurant and they want to know why they have to come to our counter to fill out a form to say, I'd like to reserve a pavilion. They're not, you're us telling them, well, that's what the other township does too. Does not make them like this anymore. You have to understand that while we have limited funding, the expectation of people is that everything's progressing and there's no exception for government. You can't just say we're better than them. You have to be better. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I think the one thing too, that I think I'm most concerned about preserving is talent. There's a lot, there's not, I don't see that many people coming into this field. And because you don't have duplicative positions, you know, at an engineering firm, there's maybe 300 engineers. So if you leave, there's someone else to fill in that slot. There's somebody else that can pick up what was happening there. You no, know, when I leave, there's nobody else doing this job. And so it just doesn't get done. And, and that's a little scary. And you feel that there's a little bit of stress that goes with that. And so the fact, and then when we try to hire, you're going, well, I don't have necessarily time to train somebody from ground zero and so do the job that I'm doing. So the training is difficult here is what I'm finding because just because of the lack of time and the lack of people to be able to fully and adequately bring somebody in and, and get them up to speed. So sometimes I feel like we're not taking time to sharpen the ax because you just feel like you have to keep hacking away. And I, I think that concerns me because I see 
less and less lumberjacks. <laughs> There's other people are leaving and we need to replace them. And everyone is just hiring from each other because it's the same pool where there's yeah. no new people coming in. So how do we bring people who are in the private sector here and, and have them feel good about it? What is it that we need to do? And I think that's a piece that's missing. It definitely, it definitely concerns me as, as everyone around me starts talking about <laughs> retirement and how excited they are for it. I'm like, happier for you, I could not be. However, I have a lot of concerns about who will fill these roles in the future. So issues around continuity and just redundancy, being able to keep doing what you've been doing that's so important in order to build on that. I, I share your concerns and that's some of the cyclic nature of some governments that do really well for a while and then they have a real valley that they go through uh, before they can build themselves back up again. So those are real issues that there's a lot to, uh, to think about. And I just have to believe it. And I'll tell you, when I first started interviewing as a consultant, this is decades ago, when I started interviewing the planners, I was like, dang, that sounds like fun. Going out talking about to the farmers, about what you're going to do with the land and just stuff that was, to me, I think what you, you're getting at is it's really about shaping the community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have to believe that the field you're in with a little bit of uh, good PR and uh, communication, that there are other young people, that this is probably a great entry point for them to get into to government. Yeah, I tried to, it's been a while because of COVID, they weren't having people in, but my sister-in-law is a guidance counselor at an elementary school. Mm -hmm. And so they always have a career fair for the, the fifth graders. And I would go. And I would do SimCity. And it was important to me because when you're that age, the jobs that you're choosing or the things that are starting to take place in my are the ones that you've been exposed to. And you, as a child, would not be exposed to government, most kids, right? So you, they want to be teachers. They want to be doctors. They want to be nurses. They want to be firemen. Things like that. Maybe an architect, but urban planning or city government is not something that they have heard of. So just going and saying like, it's like this, I think is really important just so that it's in the purview. It was a thought at one point in time. And I think the earlier, the better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. You are a real spark in the field. And I, I hope to find some other stories like yours across Pennsylvania, because I think these are the kinds of things that are inspiring and help to help to form a vision of what government can be, local government can be. So well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here today, Erin. And thank I look you. forward to more conversations, which I know we'll be having in the pioneering change community and in the larger professional community. So it's thank good you to for see. having me. I'm honored to be part of it. Yeah, great. I hope your son likes the podcast. Have a great weekend, Erin. Thank, thank you. This was so fun. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you around. All right. Thanks, Nancy. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.